Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. Welcome. How about we go ahead and get into it? Just because someone's talking about a thing doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. For example, they might be a business trying to bank off of a social movement. As a matter of fact, did you know exactly that was actually one of the first major experiments in public relations, also known as advertising in U.S. history? Yet Edward Bernays, the founder of that field, tried to sell women cigarettes by coupling their consumption with the suffrage movement in the U.S. He came up with the catchy slogan, Torches of Freedom, and did some savvy product placement at an event, and it caught fire, to the order of countless women subsequently getting hooked and dying of lung cancer and other cigarette-related diseases. So what is co-optation exactly? Merriam-Webster calls it, quote, the act or an instance of co-opting something, a taking over or appropriation of something for a new or different purpose. And the example that's given is the co-optation of the raised fist as a patriotic symbol, which Niela Orr has written about. So to be sure, movement iconography is regularly co-opted, like images of Dr. Angela Davis's famous Afro, the raised fist like was given in that dictionary definition, black leather jackets from the black power movement, especially in the settler colonial US, etc. The lack of creativity here is astonishing. After all your hard work, someone comes along and pretty blatantly plagiarizes swoops up in the momentum you've generated, and then keeping the ball moving, albeit in a completely different direction, that often involves personal gain, regularly in the form of fame and fortune, aka social capital or finance capital. An example of this would be a regular occurrence that happens in academia, maybe some of y'all have seen this, when candidates applying for professorships align themselves with particular causes. It's a strategic move and one that's often successful for them for their personal career. Indeed, co-optation is one of the perennial concerns of movements for collective liberation. Liberals, politicians, businesses, and celebrities consistently try to subsume the potency and resonance of revolutionary organizing to serve their own aims. They parrot style and lack substance and distract a whole lot of our loved ones who could have otherwise gotten connected with legit groups and community spaces and purpose and power. 
Three of the biggest examples of co-optation we see in the settler colonial U.S. today are greenwashing, diversity and inclusion campaigns, and general misunderstandings of what decolonization is. That first major form of co-optation that's alive and well today is greenwashing. What is greenwashing? How about we pause to have a look at at least one definition of it? So you can see here, greenwashing is the political or is the process of conveying a false impression or providing misleading information about how a company's products are more environmentally sound. Greenwashing is considered an unsubstantiated claim to deceive consumers into believing that a company's products are environmentally friendly. For example, companies involved in greenwashing behavior might make claims that their products are from recycled materials or have energy-saving benefits. Although some of the environmental claims might be partially true, companies engaged in greenwashing typically exaggerate their claims or the benefits in an attempt to mislead consumers. Greenwashing is a play on the term whitewashing, which means using misleading information to gloss over bad behavior. And actually, this definition that I'm sharing with y'all from Investopedia actually really merits looking at if y'all have a minute to scope out the rest of this little article. So what would be a classic example of that? If you're looking at my screen now, you can see I'm actually pulling up the most recent logo from BP, right? British Petroleum, one of the major, right, top half a dozen petroleum corporations, right, in the petrocapitalism field today. They have actually rebranded themselves using the name Beyond Petroleum. <laughs> so already in language we could talk about, right, greenwashing, right, or adding that green sheen, so to speak. And then do you notice anything in particular about their logo? It's literally right over overwhelmingly green. And so I would hope that people would be able to see through these kinds of ploys. But you know what? Actually, a whole lot of our loved ones don't. And so I'm actually gonna, beyond looking at their logo like we are right now, pull up one of BP's commercials. So again, just to write back up, some of y'all might be familiar with them, especially because they're particularly well known for horrifically deadly oil spills. Have any of y'all ever heard of any of the right legendary renowned BP oil spills? They have a horrific track record right throughout the planet historically. But let's listen to how they're branding themselves in one of BP's commercials. Please listen to see right anything in terms of voice, tone, languaging that they use, and then we can compare notes afterwards. Let's check this out. Is it possible to drive a car and still have a clean environment? To refine a cleaner petrol? Can solar power become mainstream? Could business go further and be a force for good? Can a hundred thousand people in a hundred countries come together to build a new brand of progress for the world? We think so. And now, BP, Amoco, Arco, and Castrol have come together to try. Beyond Petroleum, BP. Did y'all notice anything there in particular? Feel free to share in the comments if you did. So literally closing out with this subtle little ethereal sound of birds chirping, the music, absolutely. You gotta have the British accent as well. Like we can literally name, taking in turn, right? Breaking down the different components or constituent parts of this. And this is actually something that back in the day, even in women's studies classes 12 years ago, we would look at commercials, right, as an activity in critical media literacy, specifically from the petroleum industry, to see some of this greenwashing at play, right? And so the associations with environmentalism, framing themselves as leaders, right, progressing the field forward, none of this is neutral by any stretch 
stretch of the imagination. And even if you look to their website, I mean, the marketing genius, right? The artistry that goes into one of the greatest polluters on the planet having this beautiful, natural-looking, minimalist style associated with them, right? These choices related to design are intentional. They're also super well-funded. So I'd really like to invite our attention moving forward to any of those kinds of examples of greenwashing. So say here with right British Petroleum or Beyond Petroleum, um, of course, we're being sold to, right? They're selling us oil and gas products. That's super important to acknowledge. So here, how about we put this in conversation with some of the weeding and seeding that we were doing earlier in the season together. Do y'all remember? What was it that Rage Against the Machine said in their lyrics to that song, No Shelter. The main attraction, distraction, got you number the number the numb, empty your pocket, son. They've got you thinking that what you need is what they're selling, makes you think that buying is rebelling. It's kind of like that. So again, that last lyric I'd really like to draw your attention to, makes you think that buying is rebelling. This idea that Rage Against the Machine is putting out there for us from the 90s, of us being trained to think that we can rebel through buying, through consumer power, through purchasing power, is a real broad theme that I would really encourage us to sit with moving forward with some of the other examples that we're going to be looking at right now. So people are especially susceptible to getting scammed by co-optation if they're new to a movement. If someone doesn't yet know who the key players are, if they don't have relationships on the ground with activists that have been organizing in a community. Also, if we're principally getting information from social media, from the internet, or other sites where people can regularly create an image of themselves or their company that might actually be inconsistent with their demonstrated track record. And I can share a few personal anecdotes to get the ball rolling as we're deepening our understanding of what co-optation looks like. I remember a time, perhaps 13 years ago, when I was trying to set a healthy boundary with my younger sister, and her response to my attempt was to call me a fascist. Now, she was well aware that that accusation would be particularly grave for me as an unapologetic anti-fascist. So to turn it back in that way was a deliberate co-optation of something that I, in good faith, actually cared about at the time, and still. Uh, so this is albeit a personal example, starting to get the ball rolling. How about another personal anecdote that I can share? It involves an incident that took place in high school where I lit a candle next to a smoke detector in my family's home and the smoke detector went off. My father stormed into the room telling me to blow out the candle by gleefully saying that the smoke was, quote, toxic, end quote. Now, my father worked in the petroleum industry and regularly heard from me in high school about the toxins, pollutants, and other harms his field was responsible for. He had never demonstrated caring about if anything was toxic. Actually, that's the only time I've ever heard him use that word. Do you notice any parallels in those couple stories? They take something you actually care about that's important in the world materially that has demonstrated consequences and impacts, right? Something that might actually be important to an anti-fascist, environmentalist activist in this case. And then it's thrown back at you in a way that doesn't even really make sense and most assuredly isn't even in good faith. In that way, it can be sneaky, sometimes actually totally manipulative, 
Right. What an interesting example, Natasha. So say, for example, calling black folks racist. Right. So these allegations, right, of reverse racism. Let's follow up on that moving forward when we talk about, right, original definitions, authorship, right, and the lack of attention to power dynamics in an instance like that. Like based off of the actual definition of racism, is this even a possibility to begin with? Because when it comes to those kinds of, right, bad faith, right, flipping something in this weaponizing way, that's a wonderful example for sure, right? Madeline sharing too, right, co-optation and gaslighting go hand in hand then, 100%, absolutely. Yeah, I was picking up what you're putting down around that autocorrect, no, for sure. Uh, and so, you know who's a massive purveyor of this kind of opportunistic appropriation? the nonprofit industrial complex, of course, such that it could have enabled the following exchange between myself and my sister-in-law. So when she asked me in high school about what I wanted to do upon graduation, I mentioned something about my commitment to collective liberation. You might have noticed that mainstream career counseling for youth doesn't usually make space for such commitments to the planet or to people or to ethics. So her response was, so you're going to work for a nonprofit? That was the conditioned association that was available to her at the time. So what's up with people associating nonprofits with social change? The 2007 book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex, outlines this magnificently. And I've got to give it an epic shout out, right, by Incite Women of Color Against Violence, this rad collective that really merits knowing about if y'all are not familiar with them already. And I bring this book up here because as many of y'all know, since it came out in 2007, I have probably recommended it more than any other single text to students in the past dozen years. So again, if there is one book that you are open to reading in the next season, in the next year, to really support your discernment, for real, I could not more strongly suggest that this be that text if y'all are not familiar with it already. So let's look at a little bit of right what they have to say here around how the nonprofit system unto itself actually co-ops the kind of right movement towards social change that could otherwise be much more effectively served in all sorts of other spaces. So first off, y'all might be wondering what on earth is the nonprofit industrial complex? I've heard of the military industrial complex, taking it back to Eisenhower, right? almost at this point a century ago, right? I've seen how Mike Davis, right, extrapolated that out to talk about the prison industrial complex, which the abolitionist movement has since taken super seriously. But what is the NPIC, right? I've pulled up the definition for you, right, that Incite, Women of Color Against Violence, uses. They say it's a system of relationships between the state or local and federal governments the owning classes, foundations, and nonprofit or NGO social service and social justice organizations. So we've really got to be on the lookout for how this right nonprofit industrial complex can really distort our understanding of what change making even looks like to begin with. So in this text, right, they actually look at a few key areas, and I want to name a few of them here from the opening to the text that I've pulled up on the screen for you to scope out, right? So if people are understanding, say, change-making, right, let alone revolutionary organizing from within the framework and the limitations of the nonprofit system, what's that going to yield, right? So Incite Women of Color Against Violence has asked some of these questions. First off, how did this 501c3 or nonprofit model develop and for what reasons? How did this model impact the direction of social justice organizing? How has funding from foundations 
impacted the course of social justice movements? How does 501c3 status impact the relationship of social justice organizations to the state and give it opportunities to co-opt movements? Are there ways the nonprofit model can be used to support more radical visions for social change? What alternatives to the 501c3 are there for building viable social justice movements in the US? And what models for organizing outside the nonprofit or NGO non-governmental organization model exist outside the US that may help us? So for those of us that have been super committed to noticing how the nonprofit system has co-opted so much of our time and energy and lifetimes of commitment to social change, to transformation, to decolonization, for some people to social justice, we absolutely cannot ignore this vital question related to the role that the nonprofit system has played within right this epic limitation to our imagination. So that's going to be relevant. What's up, Claudia? Good to see you in so many different areas, whether we're talking about the co-optation of feminism through shallow women's empowerment businesses, if we're talking about the misunderstanding of decolonization, if we're talking about, right, so many diversity and inclusion campaigns really distracting people from revolutionary possibilities, we really have to ask some of these questions, right? So what's one major impediment to people even understanding co-optation? For one that I've certainly noticed, it's a sort of naive stance that might say, but don't you think they're trying? Shouldn't we give people the benefit of the doubt? Isn't this a start or better than nothing? Have you heard anything like this before? I'd be curious to know, right? So you might be sharing an epic critique only to be met with this kind of response that typically, right, might sort of be smuggled under the auspices of wanting to give someone the benefit of the doubt, right, or an organization a chance, but without zooming out to perceive, right, this bigger picture, the forest for the one tree in front of you, right? Claudia saying, oh my God, yes, all the time, precisely, right? So the thing about that perspective is, it fails to recognize the danger of people being deceived down a path that's not what it says it is. So this kind of superficial false advertising through invoking signifiers such as social justice, decolonization, feminism, maybe being trauma-informed as marketing gimmicks is super common when companies or authority figures know that the public consciousness is shifting on an issue and they want to remain current or relevant, but any changes they make are topical or superficial, kind of changing the window dressing, or more about optics than material change. So fancy websites might get changed, documents might get drafted with very fancy jargon, but that don't ever actually get operationalized. So diversity and inclusion campaigns are a principal example of co-optation from, especially in the U.S., the people's liberationist movements of the 1960s and 70s. So liberal multicultural takes on diversity and inclusion have been epically critiqued since their inception. If you're not familiar with the legendary article called Decolonizing Anti-Racism that came out of the Settler Colonial Canadian Society, this would be a really great start for folks that might just kind of casually use terms like anti-racism and decolonization synonymously without recognizing actually there are substantial differences for us to take seriously here. 
and We Rise production sharing. I feel extremely concerned about the Democratic Party slash Biden slash Harris co-opting all the momentum that was building against Trump and white supremacy. I'm interested in skills to stay clear on anti-capitalism, imperialism, and decolonization, and Grassland Greenwood saying same. Oh, we are about to go there in a huge way. <laughs> I have got you. No worries in the least. Thank you for sharing that. It's an epic concern. I don't know if some of the rest of y'all have noticed this too, but even since Biden declared victory, folks are literally like, well, um, what a horrifying response, but for real, people have been like, look at how divided the country is. We don't have to go woke instead of going broke. That shit's not even popular anymore. Like literally laying their cards out on the table, revealing they were just following the money to begin with and even pretending to ostensibly care about any of these issues. But now that they realize that not everybody is even ostensibly into whatever the wokeness industrial complex signifies in people's heads. They're like, we don't even need to do that anymore. It almost lost people the election. Just wait, we're about to go there. Uh, and so, right, we have to unlearn, right, this kind of pernicious presumption that seeing, say, black and brown faces in high places is some signifier of progress for our communities collectively, right? People not being able to grasp when it comes to these kinds of identitarian issues that there are exceptions to rules. You're welcome, Claudia, for that languaging related to the wokeness industrial complex. It, in many ways, kind of like this liberal multicultural diversity and inclusion campaign, I 100% to see as the vast majority of the time, substantially at odds with our liberation movements. And I know that might be confusing for a whole lot of people, which is why it's important for those of us that have been around the block a few times to be able to name these things are not always overlapping by any stretch of the imagination. We've got to be much more discerning and getting a sense of, right, who is furthering what to fulfill what objectives from what perspective, right? If only it was that easy, but it is definitely not, right? And so, arguably, one of the most well-known proponents, right, of what was previously more commonly called integration, instead of, say, inclusion, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., certainly in the settler colonial U.S. And after a lifetime of that labor, he took a somewhat different stance on that theory of change. He said, quote, I have come to believe that we're integrating into a burning building, end quote. This is MLK looking back after his lifetime of organizing, supporting integrationism with more of a critical stance than we usually see the way that he has gotten co-opted since his assassination. Were y'all familiar with this analysis of his? So unfortunately, why might we be less likely to hear that quote of his than so many others? Well, potentially because there are myriad privatized products and services for sale in the diversity and inclusion training space. Indeed, many entrepreneurs are banking off of this political moment, whether it's in the form of women's empowerment, coaching, and the like. And unsurprisingly, these market niches aren't informed by anti-oppression praxis or liberatory theory, to put it mildly. They certainly are not guaranteed to be at all whatsoever. So these random business people that are making millions of dollars off of a right faux topical performative association with a social movement where none of that profit is actually trickling down, so to speak, when has that ever actually worked out, right, to the very communities that inspired those social movements to begin with. Uh, right, so Grasslands Greenwood saying, my understanding is that he 
began to think seriously about economic equality and equity, and that idea isn't palatable or sellable. You're really onto something here related to, especially when it comes to right the poor people's campaign that he was working on towards the end of his life, and his critique, increasing critique of U.S. imperialism and militarism, right, really calling out the U.S. military-industrial complex as the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet, right, those shifts taking place within the year before he was assassinated, right? So a market, what we could go so far as to say deepening of his analysis that so often goes unrecognized if people are just kind of cherry picking a convenient quote from a social movement icon to benefit their agenda, as opposed to, say, making a good faith effort to really understand someone's legacy, including the evolution of their analysis and thinking over the course of a lifetime of campaigns. So I appreciate your bringing that in. That's absolutely relevant, right? And isn't it interesting to imagine, right, if we were, after our passing, right, quoted, right, from, say, 20 years prior to our death, as opposed to 10 years prior to our death, as opposed to what we were really inspired by, a year before our passing, those snapshots in isolation might not yield the same kind of awareness or analysis, right? So it's really important for us to take that seriously when we're making these good faith efforts to understand the best of the gems that have been gifted to us by social movements in the past, for sure. Uh, and so this kind of, right, very superficial take on the politics of inclusion is incredibly dangerous for our movements for liberation, right? Just kind of seeking to include more representative bodies, whether it's black, brown, fat, queer, differently abled, etc., into industries unchecked, right? So this is why, for example, even on the Red Nation podcast this weekend, they were saying, right, representative politics is going to be the death of us, right? And this is why, right, in progressive or in liberal spaces where people don't quite understand that yet, we really need to dive into this, right? And so on that front, I want to bring out a quote, actually, from the legendary First Nations scholar, Dr. Glenn Coltard, right, author of the text, Red Skin, White Masks, Rejecting the Colonial Politics of Recognition, so one of the more formidable texts, right, applying and translating much of Franz Fanon's text. Of course, the Red Skin White Masks title is playing off of Fanon's legendary Black Skin White Masks to see what, right, can really be generative from Fanon's insights when it comes to the movements for decolonization on Turtle Island. Uh, and Dr. Coltard actually has a super relevant insight for us to consider here. It's actually in a dialogue with Dr. Dylan Rodriguez from a critical ethnic studies reader that was published in 2016. And if y'all are not familiar with this reader, I would sincerely encourage you to check it out. And also the field of critical ethnic studies more broadly. I bring this in because a lot of people that are just kind of talking online about race and ethnicity and diversity and inclusion seem to be completely oblivious to the field of critical ethnic studies. And it would be game changing if more of our folks in community understood some of the insights from this field. And so I'm going to pull out a little excerpt of what Dr. Coltard shared shared here for us to look at. He says, there's a little bit of background before he leads into the piece on co-optation. There's an emergent concern with older social movements insofar as they appear predominantly negative in their articulation. As such, we're told that they risk reifying the very binaries that we ought to be seeking to transcend. Within this framework, resistance, quote, end quote, gets kind of shit on because it's an oppositional stance that doesn't come up with an affirmative gesture. I think that these types of criticisms need to be tempered, especially in contexts like Canada. Since the late 1960s, colonial power has sought to solidify its gains by rendering Indigenous subjects complacent and conciliatory 
by offering promises of inclusion and recognition. In such a context, the development of a purely oppositional stance or politics is a necessary precondition for creating or even thinking of alternatives. In the context of a co-optive multicultural politics, resistance is important as such, regardless of whether it's articulated along with alternatives. In other words, I think there's got to be a reaffirmation of oppositional politics, drawing lines in the sand and maintaining that binary, because when it's not maintained, the risk of co-optation is heightened. We're at a stage where we have to affirm even a reactive revolutionary politics in the way that Fanon spoke of it, a politics that recognizes saying no resisting is a condition of possibility for the construction of alternatives. And if y'all want to read right that entire dialogue, then check out this critical ethnic studies reader from 2016. Um, many right of y'all who are students of mine know that Dr. Dylan Rodriguez and Dr. Glenn Coltard are two of the most interesting academics alive today on Turtle Island, if you ask me, especially doing work that's unapologetically abolitionist and moving towards material decolonization. So just to make it plain for folks that know that you might not have read their work, their work is worth potentially reading, right, a year's worth of random ass memes on social media. So give yourself the gift of actually learning, right, accordingly if we want to take more seriously, not getting co-opted by that liberal politics of multiculturalism. Right, what I know many of y'all have heard me, right, problematize for years as trying to diversify the Titanic, right? That's not going to keep our communities alive. And so we need to be able to just call that out for what it is. Um, and yeah, We Rise production sharing, yeah, the Red Nation's post-election show really illuminated some of the biases of democracy now this week. My goddess, you can say that again. Uh, of course, predictably in settler colonial election cycles like this year, we can really see some of the biases of these progressive spaces like democracy now. It's not decolonized now, and that's all the most obvious, right, when it comes to some pretty brazenly sort of partisan reporting that's not going to keep my family alive, that's not going to keep a whole lot of our families alive, right? It might seem cute for especially, right, white, right, multicultural liberals, but for the rest of us, it's always already been completely insufficient. So we also just need to cut our losses conceptually and be honest about that at this point, right? And actually on that front, um, to take it back to some of what y'all were speaking to related to the settler colonial election, there's something that really merits us getting into here. I don't know about y'all, I'm so many kinds of over even talking about this election, although again, it does merit some analysis so we can go there for a minute. So if you're looking at my screen, you can see that New York City's DSA, or Democratic Socialists of America chapter, created this handy graphic to show a little data to refute a baseless claim that has been made recently that, oh, those, right, progressives, right, or the squad, or DSA, or BLM, right, or the movement for Medicare for all, right, or other grassroots mobilizations, they almost cost the Democratic Party the election. But what we see here, right, is that actually those candidates that supported the movement for Medicare for all Every single one of them on this lineup, if they supported it, they won, right? And if they didn't support it, they actually lost their bid for a candidacy. And so, right, can we see that, right, Democratic Party establishment trying to take credit for all of this grassroots, right, movement organizing, trying to subsume that energy for themselves, for the Democratic Party establishment, and then distancing themselves from, right, progressive Democrats, from the squad, right, from the abolitionist movement, obviously. This is legit almost like in psychology when people talk about 
about these Darvo manipulation tactics, like you deny something that you did, right, and basically flipping the stance on victimization, then you attack who you were attacking to begin with, right, you reverse the stance, and then you pretend to be a victim. It's almost low-key that that the Democratic Party establishment is playing with here, right? And it's most assuredly not just about the movement for Medicare for all in the least. We can see this showing up when it comes to the fight for 15, right? $15 an hour being a baseline minimum wage, right? When it comes to the legalization of ganja, when it comes to so many other, right, key progressive, right, issues to really refute this horrifying idea that actually, right, any kind of, right, marginally liberatory zeal is costing the Democratic Party, right, as opposed to being their only hope moving forward. Not that I'm attempting to save the Democratic Party by any stretch of the imagination, but again, if they were even savvy, then this would really just merit some substantial attention, right? And so the diversity and inclusion liberal movement would legit have us celebrating BIPOC soldiers caging brown children at the border. Didn't you see? It was a black or a brown soldier. Break out the champagne. What a victory. It eviscerates space to ask what, if any, ethics are getting promoted. What's the political objective getting furthered? I've even seen this taken to an extreme in entrepreneurial spaces where entrepreneurs from oppressed identities will legit say, and let me know if you've heard this before too, big corporations have no ethics. I'm not going to be held to some standard that they're not even held to. How horrific of a stance, let alone when it's said with self-righteousness, as if someone cracked a code and are now liberated from their conscience? How freeing. Indeed, entrepreneurs and businesses regularly steal language from activism for, again, their own fame and fortune. So this co-optation of social movement theorizing, like social justice or decolonization, when they reach a certain stage of popularity is something that we can anticipate from a mile away. It's problematic to invoke those very important ideas when someone hasn't actually ensured that they can follow through with delivering consistently with what they're advertising. This is just basic honesty. And so I'm not saying this to discourage people from trying on language, right, from learning, from being beginners at a field. It's not that at all whatsoever, but it's rather that so often people see money in a thing, literally hearing these phrases like go woke or go broke, and they just try to follow the money. Uh, and something that's really at stake there is then it's not like we're actually moving the needle forward towards material liberation for our earth or for our communities. We're just dealing with all of these distractions and diversions like smoke and mirror shows, right? So especially, right, if folks with more privilege, like maybe they're in the settler colonial U.S., right, are diminishing the seriousness of a particular issue when other folks could actually be in physical danger, that unto itself is a problem that really merits our taking seriously, right? Because so often that ends up centralizing, right, this kind of privileged ignorance, possibly coddling fragility, and in a way that, right, is all too common in a whole lot of these spaces that are facing calls for diversification, but that don't actually have any kind of allegiance to us getting free. So, right, so often in those kinds of spaces, we'll see anything but say, actually doing the work of decolonization. This comes up so often with land acknowledgements, right? And so you might have seen this in a lot of different instances. I even just in the past couple of weeks was on one call, right? It was a drag space led by a Black-led organization where they were wanting, they did a land acknowledgement, some version of a land acknowledgement at the beginning of this Zoom call, this virtual event, and they literally only used the past tense in referencing 
between Indigenous peoples and this entire land acknowledgement. Like something along the lines of, we want to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples that used to live in this particular land base, like legit relegating Native folks to the past, right? And that's an example where doing something wrong can be more harmful than not doing it at all. Do you see what I mean by that example, right? So to make it plain, it's presuming what are Native peoples not in that place that's still being occupied or that's still being stolen. That mythology of elimination is a colonial lie unto itself, right? And so you also see this in unapologetically neo-colonial institutions like, and I'm sorry to even have to write grace these fools with naming them, but the Esalen Institute, it's this place that some hippies go to, right, on the so-called California coast, right, just south of the Bay Area for super expensive bougie retreats. It's an area where they literally put a fake sweat lodge on top of a real ceremonial site from the Esalen tribe. And they legit, right, on their webpage where they're doing this, like, fake, faux, phony land acknowledgement are like, the Esalen tribe used to live here so many thousands of years ago. And the legit, real Esalen tribe is in lawsuits today with this fake, new cage, hippie, faux, spiritual, right, business saying, right, that there are all sorts of transgressions that they need to be held, right, accountable for. And so this is another, right, example of a thing getting twisted, where if somebody doesn't know any better, they might be like, oh, how conscious, you know how we're, like, supposed to do land acknowledgements? Look at how they're, like, doing this hip thing that people are supposed to be doing, when in actuality, they're doing way more harm than good, right? So that's a real clear example of what I was alluding to earlier when I said, like, it's so dangerous to just give people the benefit of the doubt. It, I just want to gnaw my arm off when I hear people naively, right, acting like there's something good or nice or positive or conscious about that. Because when it comes to these kinds of instances, right, that's a really, frankly, gullible, right, position. And the thing is, it's not positive to be naive politically. People get hurt when we're naive and when we're gullible. This kind of Pollyanna-ish stance of thinking, just giving people a chance in this way, right, to fuck up when they're not the ones that are going to be consequentially harmed is actually super irresponsible, and we need to get more hip to that yesterday, the last time I checked. Uh, and so, right, again, the thing is about that, co-optation makes it seem like a thing is happening that isn't, right? It is almost like a form of false advertising. And sometimes co-optation happens through abstraction, People so often abstract. We talk about abstractions a lot at Liberation Spring, how they can unground us. So we're going to talk about this more later in the season when we talk about the earth and grounding and how illuminating it can be, right? Separating the wheat from the chafe, so to speak, to be able to be grounded with some kind of accountability to the earth and to our communities so that we don't end up abstracting to the point of really making sure shit up in irresponsible and dangerous ways. Uh, and so this is one of the things, right, that we're going to delve into a little bit more, actually, for this week's Seeding Saturday, when we talk about context, right, how really honoring context is a really great aid to ensure that we're not, right, abstracting, just making shit up in a vacuum in a way that's completely divorced from our material reality and can confuse so many of our loved ones. So... Especially, right, if, say, we are hungry or our neighbors are being oppressed, then why are we just playing these, right, theoretical or hypothetical mind games, right, interpreting a certain word, right, in this way that is totally untethered from our actual real material needs? It's irresponsible, frankly. So in conclusion, let's go full circle to that story that I opened up with of the cigarette industry's co-optation of the suffrage movement. And you might have noticed I didn't just say the tobacco industry, total aside in terms of actual medicinal plants. Like tobacco is not necessarily doing anything to anyone. Tobacco is an incredibly right powerful medicinal plant that is sacred within so many different traditions. So I really discourage us from talking shit on the so-called tobacco industry. It's not the tobacco 
plant or its spirit that's been fucking with people via cigarettes, right? So let's take another look. Everyday people were sold the idea that cigarettes were associated with the suffrage movement through an abstraction that was sold to them by celebrities. This lie wasn't sold to them by activist organizations on the ground. If everyday people were sourcing their understanding of liberation closer to home, I wonder if that would mitigate the likelihood of co-optation to succeed. As in, if your take on black liberation, for example, is attuned to the organizing on the ground in your region and rooted in membership-based organizations or groups who have been doing the work day in and day out, independently from accumulating any fame or fortune, it might be less likely that you're scammed by opportunistic advertisers trying to sell t-shirts or programs on the internet. Fear not, though. Attention to context is, again, a formidable counter to the inauthentic pillaging of co-optation. I invite you to join me this week as we sharpen our capacity to spot co-optation by bringing context to our perception to aid our discernment. So that's what we're going to be getting into on Seeding Saturday this week. But between now and then, let me know if y'all have any questions or comments in the chat, especially if you've seen any attempts at co-optation recently that might have been alarming? Have you seen something that you imagine might be co-optation, but you're not sure whether or not it actually is? I'll share another idea in closing that's super relevant here and a resource in case you'd like to scope something out between now and Saturday. Have you seen the documentary Pride Denied? If not, I would sincerely suggest that you check out this film. Its tagline is, homonationalism and the future of queer politics. So this really merits checking out if you're not familiar with it already. Right, Grassland Greenwood saying, I just keep thinking of the phrase decolonization is not a metaphor. 100%. So that's actually exactly one of the things we're going to talk about on Saturday when it comes to setting down abstraction and keeping it context dependent to get more clear around what we're actually talking about, right? And Madeline sharing MLK Day feels like a cultural co-optation. Thank you for that also, right? Yeah, it's such a horrifying example when, again, people are just kind of self-congratulatory in this way that isn't necessarily rooted in, right, being someone that would have supported MLK when he was alive, certainly not when he was talking about the U.S. federal government being the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet, right, maybe not when he was really coming out against capitalism and militarism, right towards the end of his life after his beyond vietnam speech right critiquing the u.s war on vietnam right upon which he got assassinated so yeah that is such a heartbreaking and deeply personal example of people after the fact that might not have necessarily had any kind of skin in the game wanting to associate themselves with something that might make them seem personally more edgy or hip or whatever in the hell they're trying to tell themselves about themselves without actually right having anything right at stake in right putting themselves out there whisking in the game in a way that would allow them to have a more meaningful relationship with what they might otherwise just be kind of tokenizing so akira ortiz asking is it possible for a nonprofit to not co-opt or be co-opted potentially and so this is why i so want to invite your attention to reading every word of the non um the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex because they actually talk about that so to not say right every nonprofit in the world is totally beyond reproach right of course there are some wonderful folks even on this call that are doing work within the nonprofit industrial complex so one of the things that that book does is really outline for folks that are working in 501c3s right what are the limitations of that configuration that we can name at the outset and then how are we going to strategize accordingly right so to give one example we could talk about funding 
funding? That's a huge topic here, right? Where's the funding coming from? And are there strings attached to that funding, which there almost always are in the nonprofit system? So what does that mean? We know that the funders are way more likely to be white, way more likely to be bougie. And so they're already, by virtue of the strings attached to that funding, gonna be, right, ensuring that certain projects are more likely to get funded or green-lighted, other ones are less likely to be received enthusiastically, right? And so that unto itself, right, can really direct movements in very specific kinds of ways. They even talk about in that book, Right. So one, what's the history of foundations? They're tax havens, right? The original foundations, right, in the U.S., courtesy of the Rockefellers and these other robber baron families, were literally trying to hide their generational wealth from being taxed. That, materially on the ground, is the function or the purpose that foundations are serving. So if people don't even at the most basic level have that understanding, same with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation foundation, right, that really merits talking about that it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just so many people are funded by them that you're way less likely going to hear any critique of them unless you are independent in your funding. So then you can say these things without fear of some kind of backlash or reprisal or retribution or censorship, right? So we've got to ask key questions about where funding comes from and how where the funding comes from censors what people do and don't do, who's even allowed to be a part of a project to begin with how you even frame your projects, because then this also gets down into something that happens in capitalist businesses also, where people are trained to focus on short-term gains quarterly profits, right, while totally invisibilizing, say, long-term atrocities or catastrophe or annihilation. But the thing about that is, right, if you've ever worked at a nonprofit before, you might know, so often when you're applying for a subsequent round of funding, super similarly with the academic industrial complex, with our academics that are applying for new, right, foundation grant funding for their next research projects, it increases the likelihood that we'll, people will spin their work in the most positive light possible to increase the likelihood that they get that money and that they get that institutional support. And one of the things that's super dangerous about that is then it's not like we're just coming together and we're super honestly debriefing, like, what did we do well? What did we really miss the mark on? Let's be humble and keep it as honest as possible so we can learn from any potential mistakes so that then moving forward, we can write, integrate all of that into our process to be able to build successively in a way that could help the work, right? But there are all of these, right, bureaucratic forms of red tape and busy work and posturing for funders like that that don't actually have to do with the work unto itself, right? It can also really encourage this kind of tunnel vision around what the work even is or isn't. So again, it's not to paint with such a broad brush stroke to say like no nonprofit can ever do any good at all whatsoever, but especially if people's communities are being impacted by nonprofits, we have to do this page by page super careful analysis of what the drawbacks are of that potentially so then we can navigate accordingly. So not just minimizing like oh, it's probably all a wash in the end, but so for those of us who are really committed to collective liberation, we can as realistically as possible assess what's possible here, what might we need to do elsewhere, right? Another analysis that comes up from that book is the idea that within the nonprofit system, so often the idea is organizations should just exist into perpetuity. But in actuality, if our organizations were directly rooted to our movements for liberation, there's way more flexibility and dynamism, not just this static, rigid, you've got to exist forever, right? Like maybe an organization serves a purpose and then it can be composted and then something else can grow and that's great and it makes a lot of sense, right? But there are all of these strange constraints that get sedimented within this, right, multi-trillion dollar economy, which is the U.S. nonprofit system, a multi-trillion dollar business, right? Um, and that also 
goes along with all sorts of right professionalized expectations where it's more likely that someone can get a job if they have a certain kind of grad degree from a certain kind of institution and maybe less so if they're an auntie or an elder who's rooted in that community who might actually be the one that's best able to right fulfill a particular role um so a whole lot of specifics like that that really merit are taking super seriously well, it's already about time for us to wrap up this week's recording. So if you're able to kick down any kind of funds to stay independent via Patreon or PayPal so that we can say what needs saying and not be censored by random foundations like some of what we were just talking about, that would be super appreciated. Also, if you're at all open to sharing out with anyone that might find some of this analysis beneficial, I sincerely encourage you to do so. Also, please do be sure to cite me if you'd like to share any of this into intellectual production. Let's not plagiarize. We can have ethics. Uh, and out of respect for y'all's time, we can go ahead and close. Thank you all so much for listening. See you on Saturday. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyaya, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. Our power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.